When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Lynn Johnston. I did a comic strip called For Better, For Worse for many years, and you're listening to Tobin Tonight. Let's talk a little bit about the your career with being a cartoonist. Like, When did that interest come to mind, and how did it all come to be? I was interested in cartooning from a really early age, from reading the comics in the newspaper, but also comic books were available at all the corner stores. You know, for a dime, you could get Dell Comics, and I loved Little Lulu and Archie and Casper the Ghost and uh, all of the, the Donald Duck, you know, Gyro Gearloose, you know, Scrooge, all of the characters that uh, the Disney books were. I mean, I... I ate those books. I, I loved them, and we all traded them, and we had collections of them. And then Mad Magazine came out, and by then I was in my very early teens, and that just knocked the socks off everybody. And our parents were not happy with it because it was a pretty mm-hmm. right-wing kid book, right? It was telling us to uh, gift wrap our garbage and leave it on park benches and, uh, you know, to hit each other over the heads with celery. And yeah. it was a, a really subversive <laughs> magazine at the time. So you could get four Archies for one mad, and uh, we were clandestine under the stairwell, you know, exchanging mad magazines with each other. And it's it's funny that you mention all this, all these, because I know you grew up with, as you said, turn, um, reading them as cartoons, but now for someone that's 28, like myself, I grew up with them as TV shows, which is interesting. Like, I remember Little Lulu right. on the Family Channel or Casper the Ghost, so it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I don't remember... A little Lulu cartoon, but I remember the TV show. It's interesting, but now, in terms of your work, for better or for worse, I remember that as the cartoon, but more specifically for the TV show. And I kind of said this in an email to you prior to setting this up, but I call you the female Canadian Mr. Feeney for me. Huh, really? Mr. Feeney? I don't I don't find him... He was the principal in the Archie... Wasn't he? No, no. He was uh, Mr. The, oh, oh, he was in Little Lulu, wasn't he? No, Mr. Feeney was uh, was Boy Meets World. So he was like the principal in Boy Meets World. It was played by um, William Daniels. But the reason that I kind of tie these together is because Mr. Feeney and Boy Meets World would always give the kids, like even growing up in their teenage years, these advice that it, it wasn't really cutthroat. It wasn't like clear at you, but you kind of know where he was coming from. And when I watch For Better or For Worse and when you're kind of given those intros, maybe it's the really sappy music that plays a part of it too when it starts, but I I listen to it and I'm like, oh, I'm really going to enjoy this episode and I'm actually going to listen to what she said and uh, see if it works out for me in the future. No kidding. No kidding. That's really interesting for me because I, I saw those animated shows as being things that I really was very frustrated by. I didn't enjoy doing them for a number of reasons. And mo- mostly it was because the, the people that owned the studios, uh, uh, you know, they took a lot of the budget for the whole show. And I thought 
uh, used it for the wrong things. And so there was never a budget left for the shows. So they were done on a shoestring. You know, each show there was a, a very reasonable budget. And then all of the artists and writers, we all had to cut back on our own budgets because the owner of the company would take his family to the Cannes Zone Festival and buy himself a big car. And we'd say, wait a minute, there's wages to be paid and shows to be finished, you know. And so those shows for me were a very, I don't think I've ever been so angry in my life as I was when I was doing those shows. So <laughs> they came off as being okay. That's great to know. Well, that that to me, that's really surprising because, again, uh, people hide it so well or, you know, mask it, but I, I just loved it. Again, I was a, a small child watching it. Like, I, I, I read the comics, but, again, when you're a small child, reading is not necessarily you know, the attention span. So to watch it at, I, I think it came on Newfoundland at like maybe nine thirty, ten o'clock, and I would glue my butt to the seat, watch it, and it, I'll be honest, at the beginning when you used to come on and do the little monologue, I was just like, come on, just get to the get to the episode. But then as soon as I got a little bit older, I was like, no, 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 I want to I hear more of what she's going to say about what I'm expecting in this cartoon. So it's really interesting oh, to, that you said that you didn't find it as exciting. So are you a Newfoundlander? I am a Newfoundlander, born and raised. Well, you've worked hard to change your your accent. <laughs> There's doesn't uh, mind you. You're probably after a couple of beers at the pub, you'll slip into the you know into the old uh, Newfie lilt. I always tell people that I've I've been in Ontario so long that. I feel like I'm a man without an island because if I go back home to Newfoundland, it will come out. If I stay up here, they don't. They they think I'm lying. I'm a Newfoundlander, but I said all you have yeah. to do to figure out if someone's a Newfoundlander is, like you said, get a few drinks in them or get them right. very, get them very angry, and then they'll start bringing out that Newfoundland slang without even knowing it. Uh-huh. I know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about that for better or for worse. Like I, I want to get into a little bit about how it came to be, because I'm reading, and I could be wrong here, but when I looked up on Wikipedia, it said that you were at, I believe, McMaster at the time, and then you were expecting your uh, first child? Yeah. Tell me all about that, because I know that that kind of plays a, a, a factor in the for better or for worse as well. Well, as I said, we, uh, we, I was married very young. I was only just barely 20. My husband was working for the CBC here, and we decided to move to Ontario for one year until things righted themselves in Vancouver. So off we went, and he got a job at CHCH in Hamilton. And I had been working for an animation studio in Vancouver on Burrard Street. It was a branch of KVOS TV, and they had accepted a whole bunch of um, part, you know, bit part work from Hanna-Barbera. So we were doing some really bad animation, but it was the only way to apprentice. It was only the only way to learn. There was no animation school. You sort of drifted into the to the to the studio and asked for anything. And so I got a job in the ink and paint department there, and I was apprenticing to become an animator. And the shows were horrible. We were doing Rocket Robin Hood, and we were doing um, Abbott and Costello. And, uh, you know, the shows were just the worst of the Saturday morning stuff with the worst soundtracks. But the fact that it was simple, simple animation meant that those of us who were new on the job really learned what we needed to learn. And the animators that they brought up from Los Angeles were all professionals and very, very good people to work with. And so I believed that I was going to be an animator. That was where I was heading. I had gone to the Vancouver School of Art, but it was a fine arts college and there was never any indication of how you were going to make a living, right? I mean, you 
you could take a giant brush to a canvas and fold it up and you know get a roar arch in the middle and hang it on a wall somewhere but are you going to actually be able to sell it and make you know pay your bills so i wanted to be a graphic artist i wanted to be able to do advertising animation uh, newspaper illustration whatever needed to be done and so that's where I started. So when we left and went to Ontario, I had no easy access to an animation studio. They were We were in Hamilton, and the animation studios were in Ottawa and Toronto, and I was not accomplished enough to take piecework from them. I didn't have a studio set up with a proper light table and board and everything, so I had to give that up. But I was in a strange city and full of myself, and I thought, well, I, you know, I can always work in a jewelry store, which is where I grew up. My dad had a jewelry store, and I was a good salesperson, and I was good with the jewelry. So I took my folio around to all the places that I thought might hire an artist, and there was nothing available. So I, I went to a jewelry store, and the guy said, I'll hire you on the spot, but I love, I love your work, so give it one more shot, and if you can't get a job, come back to me. And so I went to a coffee shop around the corner and read a newspaper while I had a coffee, and there was an ad for a graphic artist needed at the local hospital. So I made an appointment, and all night before that appointment, I drew as many guts as I could draw. I went to the library and got Grant's and Gray's Anatomy, and I drew and copied and drew and drew, and I took in a folio of what looked like really good medical illustration. And they just wanted somebody to do charts and graphs and things like that, so I was hired by the hospital and as people at McMaster University could see that uh, you know I was doing really well at the hospital I was transferred over to McMaster where I got a job in the brand new medical school before the medical school was even built they were hiring people to do a lot of artwork they were going to try and fast track medical students through the the system and so rather than uh, sit through long lectures uh, they would have illustrated lectures that were clear and, and very easy to understand, and you could listen at your own pace. They were slide tape presentations with automatic viewers that they called a carol, and you would sit in a little cubicle, and you could, you know, it was open all the time. You could go in and take your lecture anytime you were ready for it. And so I was a good artist. I, I was put through first-year medical school with uh, uh, another couple of artists, and we didn't have to do the exams, which was great, but we went to all the dissection labs. We went to the lectures that we were interested in. We illustrated lectures. We illustrated live talks by doctors because it was a teaching hospital. So a number of the doctors would travel to other universities or lecture halls, and a lot of their talks were slides that were shown behind them. And so I would not only draw the art for the slide, I would stand in the wings and change the slide for the doctors as they talk. So it was a really wonderful time for learning and also for innovation because there were things that needed to be animated. And I had an animation background. And so things like a kidney biopsy, for example, mm -hmm. it's much easier to show in very simple animation how the, the split needle works as it goes down into the kidney than to 
try and explain it in, in text. So I was able to do some very limited animation, and it was an absolutely fabulous time for me. So as it turned out, I did a lot of comic art for one doctor who is in epidemiology and biostatistics, which is very dry. It's a lot of numbers and charts and diagrams. And Dr. Sackett's father had been an editorial cartoonist in Ontario. And so David knew the, the power of the pen in terms of illustration. So he said, he was a, my dad was a cartoonist. Why don't you do comics for me and illustrate my lectures so that they're more fun and interesting to look at, which I did. And uh, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. I'm listening. Okay, yeah. okay, I'm, ra- I'm rambling, so it's, you know, it's sort of like netflix eh? <laughs> No, no, absolutely. I, I, I didn't want to cut you off, because I was, I was just listening, and, and I, I didn't want to fe- make you feel like, oh, he's cutting me off, because I, I do find it no, very no, interesting. No, no, no. No, no. So I'll, I'll just babble on for just a bit longer, because this is how it all got started. I started doing comic art for Dr. Sackett, and the administration at the medical school were outraged. They said that this was, uh, you know, a betrayal of their fine medical standards and comic art was not welcome. And because this guy was an epidemiologist, he was a statistician, so he divided his class in half. Half got the blue diazo slides with just the numbers. The other half got the comic art, and of course the comic art side remembered more of the information and passed more exams and they did better. So eventually all the doctors were getting me to do comic art. So the detailed medical illustration that I had been doing showing plastic surgery and fetal development and all that kind of stuff, that was left to the other two artists and they hired a fourth artist to work with me doing comic art. So McMaster University still uses the comic art that we did years ago. So one of the doctors that I also did comic art for was a pediatrician and obstetrician, and I challenged him to put something over the examining tables in his office because he accepted me as a patient. And he said, well, you're the cartoonist. Why don't you do some cartoons for the ceiling of my examining tables, examining rooms? So I was expecting. So I, I was in and out of his office every month and then every week as I got closer to term. And by the time the baby was born, I had about 85 drawings that I had done for him. And he had copied them all, put the copies on the ceiling, kept the originals, but he distributed the art to all of his friends who were obstetricians. And everybody was so enthusiastic that, you know, I, I was... I just was compelled every time I went in to do more cartoons because for me it was such a strange experience, you know, to be inhabited by something else, you know, that was living. It was just the whole thing just blew my socks off. So I tried to show what it was like from, you know, from my point of view and as many other people as I could think of that uh, I had talked to during that time. These drawings were published in your first book, uh, David, We're Pregnant, uh, which was published right. in 1973 uh, under your name right. then of Lynn Franks. Yeah, so so the first little book, well, as the book was being published, my marriage dissolved. My my husband was, he's not the type of person to settle down with a child. He was he was, didn't even want a house, and, and we had a house and a dog, and he was not happy with all of that. He needed to be on his motorcycle and, you know, free, and, and uh, he had other 
ladies in his life. So he and I separated and divorced, and I was on my own, and really my life had fallen apart. I was now responsible for a house and a car and a kid, and I had left my job, my full-time job at McMaster to raise this baby and to work out of a little studio in my house freelance. And now I had to support the baby and myself and pay for my house, which was, I mean, it was horrific. If I spent more than 20 bucks a week on groceries, I couldn't pay my mortgage. So I kept a little calculator in my pocket. So it was, a, you know, and it's good to be starving. You know, it's good to be in trouble. It's It, it makes you stronger and it makes you wiser and, and you use your time much more efficiently. So uh, out of the blue, my doctor called me up and invited me over for dinner with the baby. And I thought, wow, you know, your doctor doesn't usually yeah. want to socialize with patients. So when I got to the door, his wife opened the door and there was Murray sitting in the middle of his living room floor with all my drawings around him. And he opened up a bottle of champagne and he said, kid, you got a book. Oh, so wow. he helped me. He was my editor. And uh, with his encouragement, I did 101 cartoons and we published it under David Were Pregnant. My husband's name was Doug and I didn't like the name Doug. It was kind of a thud of a, of a name when we were divorced, right? So I used the name David because it was a musical light name and I, I liked it. And so we called it David Were Pregnant and it did extremely well. There was nothing else like it on the market. And at the time, it it was a bit of a challenging subject to actually put out there. People were not talking about sex or pregnancy or anything that, of course, we're all passionately interested in. You know, it was very much under wraps. And, you know, even though it was the 70s, people were still very, very prudish and very embarrassed. And, you know, people didn't talk about homosexuality or anything relevant. It was all hidden away and covered with, the you know, ecclesiastical excuses. And so the first book, of course, because it was it was a challenging little subject, it did really well. So I thought, okay, this is how I can support myself and the baby by doing a book a year. And Murray was very enthusiastic and was certainly willing to help me, you know, find publishers, etc. So during the next uh, couple of years, I did two more books, but I also remarried and was planning to move to northern Manitoba uh, with my second husband who wanted to be a flying dentist. He wanted to work in the Arctic and fly to native communities and provide a service that was really not available up there. But he wanted to own a plane and fly it with a purpose. And he wanted a career that was going to support that. And um, I had met him actually at CHCH TV. He was working in props and he realized at the time that that was a go nowhere career for him. And he was smarter than that. So he had gone to, he'd applied for both medical school and dental school and he got into the dental school. And I hadn't seen him for quite a long time and ran into him at the airport because I used to go up to the airport just to look at the little planes. I was fascinated by them and wanted to know who owned them and I would love to have learned how to fly. So um, he was taking his flute rating at the time and instrument rating and so he was he landed on the airstrip as I was at the Hamilton airport looking in little planes and he walked over to me and I recognized him and we had a conversation and he said well do you want to fly to the next airport for hamburger <laughs> and I said you bet <laughs> so I climbed into his plane and we strapped the baby in at the back and hot damn that was for me I just that was great 
So his thing was that he said, you you know, if you want to be with me, this is my plan, and you'll have to sell your house and move way up north. And I thought, hmm, adventure <laughs> or stay in, in this lovely little house in my little neighborhood and do my freelance. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd like an adventure. So that's what I did. So while we were preparing to move north, I had by then an American publisher in Minneapolis he was very detail-oriented and very much a perfectionist, and he had me redraw the whole thing of David were Pregnant. He didn't like the art and said it was sloppy and, and too loose, and it was inconsistent. And I, of course, was pretty full of myself and thinking, you know, what are you talking about? The book is selling well. Well, yeah. it was the content of the book that was selling well, but the art, he was absolutely right. Once I redrew everything, I was much happier with it. Okay. So with him, I did the three little books, David were Pregnant, Did They Ever Grow Up, and Hi, Mom, Hi, Dad were the three little books I did with him. And I was thinking of just doing a book a year. But he sent the three books to Universal Press Syndicate in Kansas City, Missouri, with a letter saying, if you don't publish her, I will. If you don't syndicate her, okay. I will. And as I was planning to move to northern Manitoba, a 20-year contract was offered. So I flew down to Kansas City, and I had no idea of what I mean, I'd read the contract, but I was, again, very young and naive, and I, you know, I I didn't know a lawyer who could read this for me. So I just thought, well, I guess, I guess if I move north, this gives me 20 years guaranteed full-time work. So I signed it. I was nervous as anything. My stomach was in knots. I signed the contract, and I thought, all I can do is my best. If I, if I can't fulfill their requirements, at least I would have given it my very, very best shot. So as it turns out, moving up to this isolated northern community, Lynn Lake, Manitoba, was the best thing that could have happened to me because I was isolated. And I'd had a new baby by then. So I had a five-year-old son and a brand new baby, which is a lot of work. And But yet I was moving to a town where my husband's parents lived. So I had support there. And it was a great house that we moved into up there. It had lots of space and a good space for studio downstairs, which was warm. The studio I had in Dundas was, you know, it was a greenhouse, so it froze in the winter and, you know, was too hot in the summer. So here was a good studio and I had a really good editor who allowed me six months to work towards a comic strip because I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to do a daily comic feature. I had done a variety of illustrations in my books of different people with different family situations. For David, we're pregnant. There might be a, a cartoon about a woman who was expecting her fourth child and not sure whether she was going to be able to manage, or another woman who was expecting her first and overwhelmed by the change in her body. So I, I tried to show different nationalities and different social structures, and, and I wasn't doing one character that I had perfected. I did not have a signature character. The only characters that I could draw over and over were my own family because I drew them on the bottom of letters that I sent to my parents. And Universal Press Syndicate at the time, this was 1978, I guess, they were looking for someone. They, they were really happy with Kathy Geiswhite's work. She was doing a strip called Kathy, which was about a single woman, and it was, you know, straight 
straight shooting about weight and food and parents in your way and you know all that kind of thing trying to trying to make it in the world as a single woman and she was very successful with that so they wanted another woman cartoonist who could challenge the family comics done by men and these you know were family circus and blondie and high and lois and you know all of these strips that were done by men they were comedy strips but they were more from a man's point of view and a guy at the time now it's wonderfully even now in many families that everybody takes part but in those days the guy would go to work come home expect you know his dinner on the table and the wife looking good and the kids clean and fed and they weren't in the trenches they weren't changing the poopy diapers and trying to unclog the toilet and you know buying groceries and managing menus and still trying to keep your sanity while you're talking babble to a two-year-old right so they wanted that kind of honesty from a woman's point of view and I gave them what they were looking for it was my editor that was uh, that suggested calling it for better or for worse because that was what they wanted they wanted the ups and downs of family life and I again I had a wonderful editor who allowed me six months to really practice what I was going to have to do full time and it did take me six months to create the characters, have them look fairly um, con- consistent, learn how to use uh, a pen and ink properly, learn to write sequential dialogue. I know when you're talking about the many stories, they draw from your family's real life experiences, like your main... For the pa- most part. Yeah. You know, I, a lot of it was made up, you know, and, and other people's stories as well. Okay. It's interesting because you were talking about all these topics that, you know, were, I guess, voodoo or weren't really mentioned. And one thing that I, I kind of read here was with a little bit of backlash with For Better or For Worse is, you know, when you kind of stop drawing the family dog, as they say, like you killed it. But, you know, basically you just stopped drawing the, the family dog and you got into about homosexuality with, uh, I think it was Michael's character that kind of got some backlash with that. But like, was it your idea to have these things happen? Well, in the in the beginning, it was a totally new form of art for me. And I was, all I had for reference was the comic books I'd read as a kid and the other cartoons that were syndicated, which for the most part didn't change. You know, Peanuts didn't change, High and Lois, I don't think changed that much. I, Family Circus didn't change. The characters all, the kids were all the same age all the time. And I thought that my work would be the same. But as my own children were growing up and becoming more and more interesting and more and more capable and then having relationships with kids outside the family, I realized that I couldn't keep everybody static. I couldn't keep everything the same because it would have bored me to tears, to be honest. I would never have been able to sustain something every day for 20 years if, if everybody stayed the same age. And so I kept the characters in the strip the same age for three years so that my own children could grow up past that level so that they were separated by three years from the characters in the strip because I remember being in grade one I would never have talked to a grade three or four kid they were grown up you know so you you really are quite separated as a child from people who are three years you know different in age and so once that had to be achieved the characters in the strip grew up annually they they aged every year as you know a normal family would would age and so did the adults and their 
you know, the the relationships they had and the situations they found themselves in were all very believable. The the dog never became a magical talking dog. You know, nobody uh, really had a, a fantasy kind of life. It was all pretty cut and dried and realistic. And so I had a very solid audience of families, you know, women who were saying, this is my story too, and men as well who said, boy, this is in the trenches, I can identify, and and it was an identifiable connection to the readers, which kept it going and kept the readership strong. I was in 2,000 papers by the time, you know, the strip was 12, 15 years old, so it did it did extremely well. And the the characters had had to the dogs had to die because they don't live that long, right? So when the family dog passed away, uh, it was well past the age that an old English sheepdog would live. So that had to happen. And the story of the gay character came about because one of my dearest friends was murdered in the, on the streets of Toronto. Um, he was a comedy writer for the CBC. We'd known each other since about grade four, and he was he was he starred in Peter Pan in Toronto. He was just he was a delightful, funny, talented guy, and he it was very small. He was very light, very slender, very small person. And he um, there was a, a kid on the street, kind of a homeless kid, and Michael gave him forty bucks and said, "Look, go get yourself some food. There's a shelter." Gave him the address of the shelter and said, "Take care of yourself." Well, the kid followed Michael home, saw where he lived, uh, went and got a knife with the 40 bucks, went back to Michael's place and knocked on the door. And when Michael opened the door, he slit Michael's throat Mm. and he stole his stereo and his bicycle. So for a stereo and a bicycle, this guy, you know, became a murderer. And the police at the time tended to say, well, there's another predator off the street. They were not sympathetic for the loss of a man. They were sympathetic for this kid on the street that they felt had been approached by uh, uh, somebody who was unsavory, right? So Michael's partner went crazy uh, for years, was trying to vindicate this situation. The young man who killed Michael was he did not get the punishment he deserved. He was considered an at-risk youth and all this kind of stuff and was given every benefit of the doubt. And I doubt that he is in jail now for murder, mm. for first-degree murder. So the death of Michael Vadboncourt made me want to show the world that this was my friend. This is my, you know, my childhood friend. I'd known him for years and years, and the fact that he was gay was far down the line to who he was as a person and the the wonderful comedy and theater that he brought. So I thought, um, if I can put this in the comic strip in a really creative and subtle but meaningful way, uh, w- without sensationalism and without... And I just wanted it to be a natural, comfortable thing. As it turns out, when I was living in the north, my husband's brother came to live in the same town, and he was gay. He was a textile designer, and he came out to his to me first, actually, and um, and then to his mom and dad. And everybody was extremely upset. Uh, the mother said, uh, "We cannot tell your dad he has a heart condition," and we said, "No, you've got to tell." 
uh, dad. And when we told him, you know, we were together, he looked at uh, Ralph and said, I've known since you were 11. And he kind of laughed and said, well, that's over with. Let's let's go get on with it, right? So it was a situation where everybody knew, but, you know, it it was upsetting, but in the end, uh, family is family and people are people and we all loved him and it was a relief for everybody. And so when I decided to write this story, I asked him, my brother-in-law to help me make sure that, that it was written from a very true and believable point of view. So he helped me with the dialogue all the way through. It was Lawrence, Michael's best friend and the kid that lived next door, who as a teenager reveals to Michael that he's not going to marry a woman which is what Ralph had said to me. I'm tired of my mother, you know, trying to hook me up with girls and I'm never going to marry a girl. And so it was like, oh my God, it's about time we talked about this because it's it's something that, you know, it's, is there and it's evident and we just need all of us to deal with it. So his help was invaluable and the story was a simple, uh, decent story, but it, it and, and my, my editor, his name was Lee, he told me I might lose a few papers. Well, what we did was we we sent a letter to all of the editors to say that the story was coming. It was sent eight weeks in advance of the publication date, along with a secondary story, which was gleaned from other older comic strips, and I had added to that. And we we created in a rush, but it was a good alternate four weeks of material if they did not care to run this story. And many of the editors did not bother to read our letter or look at the package. They just ran the story because the comics page is not of interest to many of the editors. They they don't care. They're much more interested in the headlines. And so they felt blindsided when the story ran, even though we had given them eight weeks advance notice. Yeah. So the story ran, and in the end, we uh, we lost about 45, 50 papers, but we gained more because with each paper loss, another paper that was uh, restricted from purchasing the strip because uh, ex- exclusivity clauses, they picked up the strip. So the sensation of it caused a lot of papers to look at it, and they were when they were able to buy it, they did. So I picked up... Uh, more papers than I lost. But my phone rang from morning to night every single day, from, say, 7 in the morning till 11 at night. And mostly it was editors and writers and news, you know, people in the media who wanted to comment or to ask for information and things like that. And I didn't hide behind the syndicate. I didn't have anybody else take the letters or the phone calls. I did it all myself. And I found out that, um, you know, editors all over the place are are genuinely pretty open-minded and they want to show both sides of a, a story. And and big newspapers like the Chicago Tribune or the Toronto Star, they're they love a controversial story. They they enjoy having a lot of noise over a story. But the little rural papers yeah. were it was different for those people because the editors in a small rural paper he couldn't go to his corner coffee shop for a coffee in the morning without being seriously accosted by readers who were furious. And these editors, some of them had to stop the strip. Some of them, you know, had to write uh, op-eds, you know, to to talk about this. But very few of these editors 
cancel the story, but their lives were in you know upside down as mine was for the time that it ran. And it was a good thing in the end. There were times when I'd go to bed in tears thinking, no wonder nothing changes because the brutality of the people that attacked me with the death threats and, and, you know, editors saying, you know, my children were attacked at school and my dog was spray painted and my house was egged and stuff like that. You say, really? I mean, honestly, a simple little story of, of... natural human situation would cause something like this. But I think it was a story that I'm very proud of. There, I received about 3,000 letters, and I answered. I, I got friends to help me, but I answered all of the letters that were reasonable. There were some negative letters that were reasonable, but most of the negative letters were absolutely unreasonable and many of them had been written by people who never read the strip they were just told by their you know it was a very religious right they were maybe hundreds of letters came from one community that were on postcards dear mr jackson we hate what you do on the sunday page well it never appeared on the sunday page and it was mrs johnston right so they didn't read what i did they were just told and they blindly forged ahead with their angry mail. So I, I took all the after I had answered all the letters, I took these boxes of letters to the university in North Bay and the sociology department were really interested in these letters and they went through them and you know they by age and you know state and anything that they could used to sort of identify the the cross-section of people who had written, you know, economic status, and, I mean, whatever they could glean from the paper that it was written on, you know, it was interesting. And in the end, 70% of the letters were positive, but the 30% that were negative were devastatingly negative, and to the point where I think some of these people would have really done harm to myself and my family. So I learned a big lesson when I did that, and, and yet I... I, I would do it again. In discussing all that and discussing kind of the, the change of times, do you think if you did the comics still today or if you were still doing the TV show, you'd get a little bit more of a... a I know you said that a lot of it was positive, but do you think you'd discuss a little bit more topics of you know LGBTQ, uh, a little bit more of what's going on in the world today and trying to implement that into the comic? Well, in the end, a comic strip is an entertainment medium. Right, it, and you can't use it as a platform. So you have to be very careful in what you decide to discuss and when you decide to discuss it. And so, if if you have a year's worth of work, maybe one storyline in that year could be a serious storyline, and the rest has to be flippant and silly, and you know, talking about things as innocuous as zit. If you talk about kids smoking or drinking. As teenagers, that's a very sensitive subject, but every kid drinks, every kid smokes, and if you're going to be true to what you're doing of the for better or for worse of life, you know, you have to look at that. So how serious a storyline is that, and would that be my one storyline in the year, or would that be, you know, so you, you have to juggle what you're going to do that's super serious. There were a number of topics that I never covered. One uh, was sort of I covered with child abuse where uh, uh, Gordon, Michael's friend Gordon, his father beats him, but it it was only a one a one situation storyline. I didn't capitalize on that. Uh, there was another 
uh, situation where the the woman next door, her husband was unfaithful to her, but I didn't really get into that. There were some of the things were just too raw and too perhaps too close to home for me. Okay. The other thing I want to mention, just briefly here as well because you mentioned about it being too close to home for you and I, again this might be a little bit too personal and feel free to shut it down but there was a column by I think it was Jan Wong of the Globe and Mail that reprinted in lunch with Jan Wong nobly portrayed that Johnston as somewhat uh, it was difficult you mentioned about your childhood and your mother being a bit difficult in the sense of you know wasn't being able to raise you is that can, is there a light to that or is that true? Oh, that's very true. No, my mother my mother was one of these people who was raised in a very stuffy British family who only wanted boys. There were three girls. Of the three girls, she tried to be the boy my grandfather never had, and he never accepted her. She never had any connection with young people. She worked in his office as a child and as an adult, and she had been sent to... I mean, she she had a horrible, horrible childhood where she really, she was never happy. And so she was a brilliant person who should have gone to university. She should have had a degree in something. But she ended up going to England, met my father during the war, married and and was a housewife. And she was bitter and angry. She She needed a life. She needed to have something more than diapers and you know, pie crust. And yet she was excellent in everything she did, but she did not enjoy being a parent and she did not want a girl. She wanted boys for her father because that was the British way. And so she was really disappointed when I was born. And she took out a lot of her anger on me and that we were never close. And when she died, I didn't cry. It was one of those deals. And she never once said she was proud of me. And I've, I've talked to lots of people who's Parents are, you know, upper crust Brits or or from different nationalities where you, you know, you don't praise your children or show them lots of sensitivity. Uh, whereas my neighbors who were Italian were all over their kids. I mean, if they were mad at them, they were outrageously mad. If they were loved them, they were arms all over and kisses. And it was everything was out in the open. And I I would have given anything to live in their family because if they were mad, you knew it. If, if my mother was mad, I'd say, why are you angry with me? And she'd say, you should know. With the For Better or For Worse, I know you mentioned in the early going, I mentioned about how I watched it as the TV show and you had advice to begin at the very beginning and the ends of the episodes. If there's anyone out there that, you know, is a little bit artsy, a little bit into drawing, um, just for old time's sake, give us a little bit of a monologue of what you'd give to them for a bit of advice. I'd rather not, because I don't even remember. I honestly, I swear to God, I don't remember. Those things were done fast and furious, and I was nervous, and there'd be a camera on me, and I know that the shows were broken up into beginning, middle, and end, and I would rattle off something, and I swear to God, I, I just couldn't do it now. No, that's fine. It, it, it's, it, it, I, I guess in another in another way is, you know, for just young people out there that are really artistic and maybe they're doing drawings and they want to get published, uh, what would be some advice to give to them? My advice to young cartoonists is to draw everything. Draw couches and trees and horses and dogs and, and take life drawing because most people just want to draw people and they do anime and they they don't think about where this character lives and and what they eat and so it frustrates me when i see really interesting drawings of figures but i never see people's drawings of trees or where these figures live and 
copying is fine as long as in the end it's your own voice that you're, you know, that you're able to bring out. There's just so many things, so many things. And, and if somebody doesn't get a gag, that's 90% of your audience. So if your mom likes it and you like it, but your friends don't redo it, you know, like, it, you know, yeah. if you're working for an audience, it's a performance. And if your audience doesn't get it, you know, uh, little kids, they, they draw faster than their mind. They, they, their mind goes faster than their hands can go. And so they often will do a comic strip or a comic story where nothing makes sense because their, their brains are working far faster than their hands can draw. So for young people, it's good to write the story first and then illustrate it, not to try and draw it as you're thinking of it. I mean, there's so many things. I've done so many workshops with so many kids, you know, and everybody works differently, different materials, different uh, style of drawing. Um, I, I, I just can't say enough. Stay away from anime. Draw your own stuff. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Lynn Johnston for coming on the show. Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying, For better or for worse was a great show. If you have kids or want to stroll down memory lane, go find episodes on YouTube. They still hold up. Anyways, thanks for listening, and good night. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com. Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.